Well, thank you. Thank you, Carlos and musicians. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. 23, 24, 25. While you're finding that, we say it's joy to be with you today and to see so many old friends, uh, more than I dare name here today, but it's good to be here. Man, uh, said to a lady one time, said, how old are you? She said, my age is my business. Why do you ask? Said, looks like you've been in business a long time. (laughs) Some of you look like you've been in business a long time, and so have I. But I have uh, been in business long enough to know a good church when I see one, and this is a good one, and to know a good preacher when I hear one, and you've got maybe the best in the whole state of Texas. Hope you know that. Hope you tell him that every once in a while. Uh, not too long ago, the Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas, which is not uh, an insignificant church in itself, uh, was looking for a pastor, and they asked me, nobody wants me anymore, but they asked me about other preachers, uh, give, me, give us the name of the five best preachers in the state of Texas. And I gave them five good names, and at the head of that list was Dwayne Brooks. So... I really seriously think he is a wonderful, wonderful pastor, and I thank you for letting me be here to fill in for him today. Now, I was a pastor myself for 34 years. I was in a little place called Troy, and then in Taylor, and then in San Marcos, and then wound up in Tyler at the Green Acres Church for 17 years. And after 17 years there, I went to be president and chief executive officer of the Annuity Board, Southern Baptist Convention. That's A-N-N-U-I-T-Y, annuity. I used to say it, now I spell it. The reason is I was interim pastor at the Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth and followed the last service of that interim pastor. They had a reception for my wife and me. And as people came through the line, one little girl said to her mother, Mother, does Brother Powell work for the nudity board? <laughs> and it is a, is a pleasant thought, but my work was not nearly that interesting. We... We took, care, we took care of the retirement and the insurance, ministers and missionaries, anybody who worked for a Southern Baptist institution or agency. Well, after I left the pastorate, went into the business world and the denominational world, people would ask me, do you miss being a pastor? And the answer was always the same because there's a wonderful relationship that can exist between a pastor and his people. I, I liked all of my people and most of them liked me. I loved all the little children, and they all seemed to love me. And when I left Green Acres, the third grade choir wrote me some letters I have treasured since that time. One of them wrote, thank you for being our preacher. Thank you for making the sermons interesting. And a lot of times I knew what you were talking about. (laughs) Lester, I got an idea that some deacon wrote that and signed a kid's name to it. (laughs) Another one said, I will miss you, Paul. I'm... Uh, Thank you for baptizing me. I'm sorry for wasting your time. (laughs) Every preacher has one or two like that, you know. The one I like best, though, said, It won't be much like it used to be without you. I'm sad that you're leaving, but I will get over it. (laughs) Well, they're over me by now at Green Acres, but I'm not over them. So when I have a chance to be with people like you, it just brings back a lot of wonderful memories And I thank you for that uh, privilege. Well, after I retired from the annuity board, moved back to Tyler, was preaching around the country for a couple of years, and they asked me if I would come down to Baylor University and be the dean of Truett Theological Seminary. And I agreed to go for three years, and 
it stretched into six and a half. Things have a way of doing that, you know. But after I went back to work, people would ask me, why in the world would you go back to work after you've retired? Don't you work all those years so you can sleep late and you can play golf and you can travel? And I found out retirement's not all it's cooked up to be. I mean, the first day of retirement, I said to my wife, honey, how about fixing me a hot breakfast? And she said, won't you set your raisin brand on fire? Yeah, that's one of our better days. So I just, I took off to Waco and would eat at IHOP and they treated me a whole lot better there. But of course I tipped them also. So anyway, wonderful to be with you. I want to speak today on the subject, the cross and the crown. Years ago, I visited the grave of my great-great-grandfather, the first uh, member of our family that I know about to come to Texas. Henry Jackson Powell. Now, I knew I had been born in my grandfather's log house. I'm not talking about one of these modern prefab jobs. I'm talking about uh, an old-fashioned pioneer log house. He cut the trees out of the forest of East Texas. He trimmed the bark off the trees. He notched them. He put them together. He chinked in between the cracks with a mixture of moss and mud to keep the wind and rain out. Uh, We were a part of a pioneer family, but nobody ever talked about our ancestors. Nobody ever talked about uh, the family that preceded us. Not sure why. May have been the same reason that Adam Clayton Powell, that black congressman from New York, gave on one occasion. He said, I had my family tree looked up, and then I had it chopped down. Uh, I got an idea there's a horse thief hanging from one of the limbs in the family tree back there. But I've got a cousin who's into genealogy, and she found out that my great-great-grandfather, Henry Jackson Powell, had been born in Mississippi in 1824, came to Texas 1861, right ahead of the Civil War. In fact, he may have been trying to get his family out of the heart of the Civil War. He and his wife, Nancy, and seven of their children, later on they had four more, but Uh, They traveled by ox cart. It took them six months to cross Mississippi and Louisiana and to get into Texas. He intended to go to Polk County around Livingston. But his little girl was sick, and as soon as he got into Texas, he found a clear flowing spring, and he camped there. And he liked it so well, he just decided to stay there in deep, deep east Texas. And so he bought the land from a man he thought was the rightful owner, found out later on it was a false deed, and that was very common in those days, and he had to buy the land the second time. But he settled there and, uh, as I said, had four more children, so he populated that whole part of East Texas with Powell's. And I found out from her that uh, my great-great-grandfather, Henry Jackson Powell, was buried in the cemetery in Brooklyn, Texas. Now, Brooklyn is a little community Uh, that is about 15 miles north of Jasper, between Jasper and St. Augustine. That's where I was born, and he was buried there. So she sent me a a picture from from the internet uh, of the cemetery and his grave. It it had an iron fence around it, around his grave and his wife Nancy's grave. And so when I walked up to the cemetery, I looked out across it. It was the only two graves in the cemetery that had an iron fence around them. So I went right straight to where he was buried. Well, the gate and that old iron fence was cracked open a bit, and so I pulled it open the rest of the way, and it creaked with with rust. And I walked in and walked around to the side of his grave, and I I stooped down right beside his grave, and, and on the tombstone, I brushed aside the mud and sand that had been splattered there by a hundred years of rains. 
And I read this epitaph. Here I lay my burden down, changing the cross for a crown. Here I lay my burden down, changing the cross for a crown. And you'd have to know a little bit about me to understand that in those moments I was overcome with emotion because no male member of my family had ever given any evidence of faith and trust in Jesus. Not my father, uh, not my grandfather. I never saw either one of them in church. Well, one time my dad came after I was grown. He, he came to hear me preach just out of respect, but that was the only time. They, they gave no evidence of ever having any faith or trust in Jesus. And here I'm standing by the grave of my great-great-grandfather, and the tombstone gives testimony that he has faith and trust in Jesus. So I said to him, Henry Jackson... You must have been a Christian. And maybe I'm a Christian today. Maybe I'm a preacher today because a long time ago you took up the cross and followed Jesus. And right there on my knees in the cemetery in Brooklyn, Texas, I said I need to preach a sermon someday on the cross and the crown. There's a crown in the Christian life, you know. The Apostle Paul spoke of the Philippians as my joy and my crown. He wrote to Timothy and he said, The time of my departure has come. I'm now ready to be offered up. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown, a crown of righteousness, and not for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. And the risen Christ said in the book of Revelation, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He didn't say be faithful till you're tired. He didn't say be faithful until you're retired. He said be faithful until you're expired. Be thou faithful unto death. There is a crown in the Christian life, but there's also a cross. And Jesus spoke about that cross in the book of Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 23. Now, you'll notice uh, almost immediately that I read from the King James Version of the Bible. I'm from East Texas. That's the only thing we'd use. King James Version, red letter edition, Jimmy Swaggart autographed anything. Anything less than that's liberalism and modernism. (laughs) Jesus is talking. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, then let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged? What's he gained? If he gains the whole world and loses himself or becomes a castaway. Actually, there are two crosses in the Christian life. There is Jesus' cross and there is our cross. And he had been talking previously about his cross. He had met with his disciples and they had some time of prayer together. And then he asked them the question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And and they said, Well, you're John the Baptist, come back to life again. Or you're Elijah. Or you're one of the old prophets. He said, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon spoke up for the group and he said, Well, you're the Christ of God. And the word Christ means the Messiah, the, the Savior, the Redeemer, the promised one of the Old Testament. 
Now, he gave the right answer. You are the Christ of God. But he didn't have the right understanding because the common belief in that day and age was that the Messiah, the Savior, would be a political and military leader. You see, Israel had been conquered by Rome, and wherever Rome uh, ruled, they ruled by martial law. And the Jews chafed under the dominion of this foreign power, and they longed for deliverance, and, and they believed that one day God was going to send a Savior, a Messiah, someone who would deliver them from the oppression of their enemy. And so they expected to have a military, political Messiah. That was not the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. Uh, He was not going to be a political Messiah. He was going to be a spiritual one. He wouldn't rule over a piece of geographical territory. He'd rule over the hearts and lives of men and women. He was not going to come as a conquering general. He'd come as a suffering servant. And he wouldn't come riding in Jerusalem on a prancing stallion. He'd come riding into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. But he had not spoken about his passion, his suffering, the kind of Messiah he was going to be up until now, except in symbolic terms. So a number of times he had spoken in symbolic language that they didn't understand. For example, he said on one occasion, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But they didn't understand that meant lifted up on a cross. He said the Son of Man must give his his flesh for the life of this world. And they must have scratched their heads. What's he talking about? Or he said on another occasion, uh, the children of the bridegroom will, will fast when the bridegroom is taken away. But what was he talking about? And then maybe his clearest revelation is when he said that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But they'd never known of anybody to be raised from the dead. They didn't understand what he was talking about. So Jesus needed to speak to them in clear language what he was driving at, what he was trying to say. And in the verse preceding the verses I read a few moments ago, He does that very clearly. He says in verse 22, uh, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised again on the third day. Now, he was saying there is a cross for me, a cross on which I will die for the sins of the world. But I want you to understand that there is also a cross for you. So if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross day by day, and follow me. Now, they understood what a cross meant. It was a place of suffering. In fact, when Jesus was about 11 years old, a man by the name of Judas of Galilee had started an insurrection against Rome. And Rome had responded uh, quickly and violently, as they always did. They they burned that little city of Sephorus. They crucified 2,000 people. They they lined the road to Nazareth with crosses on on each side of the road where they crucified 2,000 people, and then they took the rest of the people in that village back to Rome as slaves. So they understood what a cross was all about. And now Jesus is saying to them, look, I've got my cross to bear, and I will die and be 
buried and raised again on the third day. And if you're going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross. I've got mine. You take up yours and follow me. And they understood that he was talking about a life of hardship and difficulty. We delight to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus was saying God loves you and he has a difficult plan for your life. And that plan involves a cross. And what it means very simply, when I say take up the cross, it means that I'm so committed to Jesus Christ that I will follow him no matter where and no matter what. And so mark it down on the tablets of your mind somewhere. That's what it means to take up the cross. I am so committed to Christ that I will follow him no matter where and no matter what. And if I really seriously do that, I may have to give up my job to do something else. I may have to leave this country and go to a distant land as a missionary. I may have to give my life for the cause of Christ. It doesn't happen very much in this country, but in other lands, especially lands that are dominated by the Islamic radicals, uh, people are giving their life almost every day for the cause of Jesus Christ. So when he says, you take up your cross and follow me, he was saying, you follow me no matter where and no matter what. Now, to be a disciple is not somebody that just memorizes uh, volumes of Scripture. It's not somebody who just joins an organization, goes through some ritual, becomes a part of a movement. No, no, to take up the cross means I am committed to Jesus Christ no matter what and no matter where he may lead. I want to say three things about the cross. Number one, the cross is necessary. Secondly, the cross is voluntary. And thirdly, the cross is revolutionary. Now, we can remember that. Necessary and voluntary and revolutionary. Now, the first thing is the cross is necessary. So Jesus said, if a man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He's even more emphatic in the book of Luke chapter 14 and verse 27 when he says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's not optional. It's an obligation. You have to do it. The cross is necessary to being a disciple. Years ago, a couple of families in our church gave me a beautiful piece of needlepoint about this long, about this wide, uh, on a brown background, a beautiful gold embroidery needlepoint. And it had the word no in gold letters and then a beautiful gold cross. And then it had the word no again and a, and a beautiful gold crown. And the message of that needlepoint was this, no cross, no crown. You see, cross-bearing precedes crown-wearing, always. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran theologian the outstanding young theologian of his day in, in the days just prior to World War II. Uh, he came to the United States to teach at Union Theological Seminary. They wanted him to stay. Hitler was rising to power, and they knew what was going to happen in Germany. And they said, look, you go back to Germany, and you may lose your life. But he said, 
I want to help my people through this difficult time. And if I'm going to help them when the war is over, I must go through their suffering with them. That's what any pastor thinks and the way any pastor does. So he went back to Germany. And in time, he realized what a monster Hitler was. And though he was a pacifist, Diedrich Bonhoeffer participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. That's the only way to get rid of this monster. The plot was discovered. He was arrested, put in prison. And two weeks before the country was liberated, the war was essentially over. The Allied forces were marching quickly. And two weeks before they liberated Germany, Hitler hated this man so much that he stripped him naked one cold winter day and marched him across a frozen courtyard and hanged him by the neck until he was dead. Uh, One week after that, Hitler took his own life. While he was in prison, he wrote some letters. He said uh, two things I want to share with you. One is that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Bonhoeffer knew what he was talking about. And then he made this statement that's lodged in my mind. He said, grace is the way to heaven. But he who travels the road must pay the toll. Grace is the way to heaven, but he who travels the road must pay the toll. Now let me tell you, grace is the way to heaven. We sang about it a while ago. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus made it possible, and grace is the way to heaven. But the person who travels the road of grace must pay the toll. And here's the toll. If any man would be my disciple, let him take up his cross and day by day follow me. Uh, We used to sing about it. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, no. There's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. I'm telling you the cross is necessary. There's a second thing about the cross, and that is it's voluntary. That is to say, he calls us to the cross, but he never compels us to take it up. Uh, His army is an all-volunteer army. If you're a part of his kingdom, you're a part of his army, then you have volunteered. He didn't draft you. He didn't conscript you. You didn't have to be a part of it. Always. Never was anybody in the Bible commanded compelled to carry the cross of Jesus or his own cross. You say, well, wait, what about Simon of Serene? Well, two things you need to remember about Simon. He was not carrying his own cross. He was carrying Jesus' cross. And it was the Romans, not Jesus, who compelled him to take that cross of Calvary's hill. But for the rest of us, it's a voluntary decision. I was preaching in Kilgore, a little town in East Texas years ago, and gave the invitation. Two teenage boys came forward, one to accept Christ and one to surrender to the ministry. And after they'd been introduced to the congregation and before I could leave the platform, a man came out of the choir and stopped me on the platform. He said, I want to tell you a story. One of those boys, the one who came to, uh, to surrender his life to the ministry, Uh, That's my son. But he said, when I was a 17-year-old student at the University of Texas, God called me to preach. And I didn't answer the call. 
And, and he expressed it this way. He said, the phone rang, and I didn't pick up the receiver because I knew who was on the other end of the line. The phone rang, and I didn't pick up the receiver. I knew who was on the other end. Listen, God will do that, you know. He'll call you. He's got your number. No, even if it's unlisted, he's got your number. He's got your cell number. You can't get far enough away from him. And when he calls, you know who's on the other end of the line, even if you don't have caller ID. But let me tell you, God will call us. He'll call us to repentance and faith and to Christian service and to renewed dedication. He will call us, but we don't have to pick up the receiver. We can be like that man who stood on the platform that day with tears of regret in his eyes that I didn't answer the call and now it's come to my son and he's saying yes. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Came to Jesus one day, said, Master, what must I do to inherit everlasting life? And Jesus enumerated the commandments, you know, thou shalt not steal, lie, commit adultery. He said, well, I've I've lived those, by those rules all of my life. Those things I've done from my youth and up. Jesus said, then if you'd be perfect, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and take up your cross and follow me. Now, I didn't tell every rich person who came to him that he should sell everything, give it to the poor. But that man's wealth stood between him and commitment. He does not demand that we give up everything for him. He demands that we give over everything to him. You see, when I decide to follow Jesus, he doesn't demand that I sell all my stocks and bonds and I sell my cars and I sell my house. But he does demand that I give it all over to him. I say, Lord, these stocks and bonds are no longer mine. They're yours. These cars and this house, they belong to you. Everything I am and everything I have is yours. I give it all over to you. And Jesus said, do that, sell everything, and take up your cross, follow me. And the scriptures say that he turned and walked away sorrowfully because he had great possessions. And here's the thing I want you to remember. He walked away from Jesus, and Jesus let him go. Mm, He didn't say, hey, come on back. Uh, Maybe maybe the requirements are a little little strict. I'll I'll reduce them for you. Maybe we need to think about this some more. No, no. He walked away, and Jesus let him go, and he will let you go also. You can get up and walk out of this building this morning and walk away from God forever. He will allow you that privilege. He respects you too much to compel you to take up the cross. He calls you, but he never compels. That's why I say the cross is not only necessary, the cross is voluntary, One other thing, and that is the cross is revolutionary. That is, if you take it up, it's going to change your life forever. Oh, he says that right here in this passage of Scripture. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. You invest your life in my kingdom and in my cause, and you'll suddenly discover what life is all about.
And there are a lot of people who are living uh, bland and, and fruitless lives because they are living for themselves. They think only of their own well-being and their own happiness, and they don't commit themselves to a cause that's beyond them and bigger than them, an eternal cause, and they miss life altogether. Well, he said that same thing in another way in John chapter 12 and verse 24, Verily I say unto you, except a seed falls to the ground and dies, it comes to nothing. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Now you know that uh, every harvest is based upon the principle that the seed has to die. And though it costs the seed its life, the harvest is worth it. And he is using that as an analogy for discipleship, your life and mine. I've got here a package of seeds I, I picked up in a store one day. Well, I didn't pick them up. I bought them. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, as long as these seeds stay in this package... They'll never come to anything. I mean, they can stay here a year or ten years or a hundred years. And as long as they are in this package, they will never come to anything. But you know, if I tear this package open and bury one of these seeds in the ground, let it be warmed by the sun, watered by the rain, nourished by the earth, uh, it'll split open, germinate, it'll die. And out of that death will come a beautiful plant, a fruitful plant. But it has to die for that to happen. And the same thing is true for your life and mine. We have to die to ourselves so that Christ can blossom in us. And I'm telling you, it is the planted life and not the packaged life that bears fruit. And you know, the amazing thing is that what I'm talking about, being transformed, being made new, this revolutionary experience can happen in an instant. I mean, it can happen right now. It can happen today. In fact, in the world, the most revolutionary things that have happened have always happened in, in an instant. They've happened in one day. For example, on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, and it changed the world forever. I mean, that was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Up until then, the Pope controlled everything, and now suddenly men were free to serve God and to follow God as, as they felt led to. It began the Protestant Reformation, and it all started in one day. About uh, December the 7th, 1941, some of you remember that. Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the day that Roosevelt said would live in infamy, it one day changed our lives and our world forever. Or how about September the 11th, 2001, when Muslim terrorists 
destroyed the World Trade Center. And in one day, one act, our world was changed forever. Let me tell you about a day that changed my life forever. I was sitting in the First Baptist Church of Port Arthur, Texas, about three-quarters of the way back there. I was sitting by myself. I was by myself because nobody in my family ever went to church, not Christmas, not Easter, not for a wedding, not for a funeral, not ever. But a friend had invited me, and I came. I was sitting there that, that day minding my own business. When figuratively speaking... Jesus walked down that aisle that day, and he tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, boy, if you'll come and follow me, if you'll take up the cross, I'll change your life forever. And you know what? That day, that very day, I got up and started following Jesus. And it changed my life forever. Now, I haven't followed him perfectly. You'd have to know there were times when I wandered off the path and he sent somebody after me. There are times when I lagged behind and he had to wait for me to catch up. I haven't followed perfectly. But I don't believe there's a single day since then. Lord, that was a long time ago. I I don't believe there's a single day since then, if you had asked me that I wouldn't have said, yes, I do want to follow Jesus. And I'm telling you, that day was a revolutionary day for me because I took up the cross and I said to Jesus, not really understanding what I was saying, I said, Lord, I will follow you no matter where and no matter what. Lord, I didn't know where. And I sure didn't know what. But I knew he was calling. And I said yes to him. So I want to tell you, if you'll take up the cross, it can change your life. It's necessary, voluntary, revolutionary. Dallas Willard is teaches philosophy at the University of California. Dedicated Christian. He said, oftentimes I'm walking across campus and people will, will come up to me, students, and they'll say, is it true that you're a follower of Jesus? And he said, I always say to them, who else do you have in mind? You, you want to follow Buddha? You want to follow Confucius? Want to follow Muhammad? Who you, who you have in mind? Or have you decided that you want to go it on your own? Uh, in life and in death and in eternity, I'll just stand on my own. Or will you decide to follow Jesus? And that's his call and his invitation. If any man, woman, boy or girl, that includes you, would be my disciple, let him take up 
his cross day by day and follow me. That's the invitation today. It comes from Christ himself. Come and follow me. That may mean that you're going to become a Christian, that you give your life to Christ like I did that day years and years ago. It may mean that you're going to surrender your life to the Christian service in some way, minister, a missionary. It may mean a new and fresh commitment. It may mean moving your membership and becoming a part, active part of this church. I don't know what it means for you, but you'll know. And I'm just encouraging you that if the phone rings, now if the phone rings, pick up the receiver. I can tell you who's on the other end of the line. And if you'll say yes to him, it'll change your life forever. Pray with me, and then we're going to sing. Lord, we're grateful that you don't leave us alone. You respect us enough to give us our head, to give us our own way, but you also love us enough that you call us to repentance and faith, and that Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. Now, if there's someone here today who needs to say yes to you, needs to answer the call, then give them the grace and the grit to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.